If you could make your way back to your seat at this time. Love your fellowship with one another. If you could make your way back to your seat at this time for the preaching of God's word. So obviously in light of uh, CB and John's visit, um, we've actually had the opportunity. This is, this will be the second week, but next week we'll also have another, uh, guest pastor with us. But this, this morning I have the opportunity to introduce Peter Privetera, who is the senior pastor of our sister church in Lancaster, uh, Crossway Church. If you haven't been there, that's the church that's, yeah, yeah, we're excited. Our sister church. Um, they, uh, they host actually, uh, the summer youth camp that we have every year for this region in particular. And, uh, it's actually been a blessing, um, to be a part of that church and their hosting of it. And, um, ironically, I, my wife and I know several of Peter's daughters more than him actually, uh, because of the fact that we were counselors, a part of youth camp and got to know them well. And they're very, very kind and, and, um, just a blessing. And so I know that just by God's grace have been through, uh, Peter and his wife's just care for their family. So, um, yeah, so that's all I have because I don't really know Peter that well, but I know he's a brother in Christ, so that's all I got. Um, but at this time, if you could welcome uh, Peter Pervetera as he uh, brings God's word this morning. I really do prefer those honest introductions, you know. In fact, I, I think we should have, take up truth in advertising when it comes to introducing speakers. Like have a list of grievances that we share. Here's his weaknesses. Uh, thank you for having me here this morning. It really is an honor. Uh, it, it's always an honor to proclaim God's word. Um, and I've been so well welcomed by so many of you. We even got one hand clap when somebody mentioned Crossway Church. Thank you for that. I also, uh, you know, being uh, ethnically Italian, um, I've learned that you take your muscle with you wherever you go. So I brought this big guy over here with me. Uh, that's Bryce is my second daughter's boyfriend. So I take him with me wherever I go. He's big. and So it's like, you got a problem with me, you're going to deal with him. Uh, nice. Um, you, I, I do want to just mention, uh, this church has a dear place in my heart. Um, I met CB... While he was serving with Warren Betcher in Marlton, New Jersey, and um, I was planting a church in King of Prussia at the time, and I remember him talking about his desire and his eagerness to plant this church. And within a year of the church plant, um, Grace and I had an opportunity to visit, and we came and visited, and uh, of course, the, you guys were oriented this way. And I remember because of the optical illusions up there, uh, which really is like the ultimate for a young boy in church. Like instead of counting the ceiling tiles, you could focus on these optical illusions. But uh, I remember coming at that time and to see this church uh, and the way that God has established you, uh, it is just another reminder to the great unstoppable gospel that we proclaim that we carry in these jars of clay, and to the faithfulness of our Lord to us as people and to accomplish His work through us. 
it really is a glorious, glorious thing. So, you're a living testimony uh, to many of the faithfulness and the power of God in the Gospel of Christ. Um, and also, you may not know this, but CB and John are very dear both to me and to our pastoral team. Now, we can't all be world travelers, you know, go away across the ocean whenever we feel like it, like John and CB. But uh, in all seriousness, just a few weeks ago, we our team was out uh, for some meetings, and we were going to come through this area on the way home. So we thought, let's just stop in and see those guys. And we just wanted to see them. Uh, and it was really kind of selfish, because we knew that if we could be with CB and John, we'd be encouraged. And so we stopped, and sure enough, we got them just before they were about to go into another meeting. So we had about 10 minutes just to hang out with them. And it was a sweet time of encouragement. We hope for them too, but we went away encouraged. And uh, they're just very dear to us. So we look forward to seeing them. This coming week is our Regional Assembly of Elders. So they'll be with us. Uh, the region meets in Lancaster, and they'll be with us there. And then again, not too long after, we'll see many of you at youth camp. So uh, we thank God for our partnership in the gospel with you all. You are very blessed with your pastors. They are, you know this, they are among the most faithful. And so we are blessed uh, to know them, and you're blessed to have them. Let's pray together, and we'll move into God's Word this morning. Father in heaven, we do praise and thank you. We recognize we're right on the verge of opening your Word up to understanding truth that you've given to us. Carried along by your Holy Spirit, immersed in your grace that you've given to us in Christ Jesus, we have nothing but the knowledge that your truth, born by the Spirit and immersed in grace, will have its effect on us and transform us, make us more like our Savior. And that is our request that we make to you today. Would you establish us further in, in your work, in your truth, in your grace, Make us more like our Savior. Cause us to leave here today knowing Him better, trusting Him more, being changed by Him. This is a work that only you can do, God. And we ask that you would do it in this time. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a great book called The Boys in the Boat that's out now. Maybe some of you have read it. Anybody read Boys in the Boat? Yeah? Awesome. And uh, it's about the uh, 1936 U.S. Olympic rowing team. Came out of Washington State. Uh, went to Berlin. And under the piercing glare of Hitler, defeated uh, not only the Germans, but the rest of the field or the river to win gold. These young men. Well, the book follows a young man named Joe Rance. And Joe faced serious adversity throughout his formative years. One of the hardest moments he faced, maybe the hardest, he faced many, came when he was living outside of a small rural town in Washington State with his father, his stepmother, because his mother had passed when he was young, and his half-siblings in a house that his father had built. His stepmother did not 
like having Joe around. And um, he could feel it. One day he approaches the driveway and he sees that the car is packed. And the rest of the family is in the car. His stepmother and his three half-siblings, young children at the time. His father meets him on the porch, and when Joe asks where they're going, his father explains that they're moving away and that Joe is not coming with him. That Joe will stay back at the house. Alone. He was 15 years old. Now that is a life-shaking moment. Imagine this young man who's watching his family pull away and leave him. That is a life-shaking moment. Completely unexpected, completely disorienting, completely out of his control. You can imagine he was disoriented and left numb. And thankfully the story doesn't end there. Things do get quite a bit better. And you can get the book and see for yourself. But here's the thing. Life-shaking, sense-numbing, soul-crushing, hope-choking moments come into our lives as we walk out our faith in Jesus Christ, as we walk through the years, down through the decades of our lives. These moments come. And some of you have already faced life moments that were more heartbreaking than the one I just described. Most of us, experience many of these kinds of moments that are much smaller in scale, much smaller in degree, but they're still not easy. Maybe there's a job that you love that actually, that you thought you'd love, but actually ends up sucking the life out of you. Or someone you trusted disappoints you immensely and you're disillusioned. Or an insurmountable bill comes your way seemingly out of nowhere, or conflict seems to come out of the blue and destroys a relationship, or cancer threatens the life of someone you can't imagine living without. We could go on and on. You have faced many of these moments. The longer you live, the more you will face. And the question is, what helps us as Christians? What's going to help us in those life shaking moments when the ground beneath us in life seems like an earthquake hit. Well, for the Christian, there are many graces. And there are many answers to this. And they're all found in our Lord Jesus. Praise God, we have many weapons to establish us and to keep us in those life-shaking moments. And today, I'm just going to focus on one. It's a powerful one. And it can keep you in these life-shaking moments. There is a reality about God, who He is, what He's about, what He has done, and what He is doing that can ground us and keep us steady in the worst kind of fog and pain. And it's this. It's the sovereignty of God. It's the sovereignty of God. And sometimes when Christians consider God's sovereignty, they think of it this way. They think it takes away their ability to make choices. They think of, if God's in control, then what does that say about me? And the whole subject just seems seems like it's entirely counter to our freedom, our ability to exercise our will to determine the direction of our own 
lives to make choices. And so the whole thing seems almost oppositional to grace. Because it seems oppositional to freedom. And rather than comforting us as the Scripture means for it to do, it it can be alarming, it can frighten us. But sovereignty is not something to be resisted. It's something to be embraced. It's something that comforts. It's, It's something about God that grounds us and keeps us in the worst, the most difficult times of life. It's something to be embraced. Because it's part of who God is. And if it's part of who God is, then it's grace to us. Let me say it this way. I want to say it somewhat starkly so that we really begin to connect the dots. If God is not sovereign, then God cannot be gracious. If God is not sovereign, then God is not gracious. Please hear me on this. Let me put it like this. If I could have that first slide. Grace is made possible. This is what I'd like to really drive home. It's made possible by sovereignty. Therefore, embrace sovereignty and you'll experience grace. Because grace needs it. It requires a sovereign God. When we're facing those life-shaking moments, sovereignty, God's sovereignty, it's grace to us. And let me encourage you to embrace sovereignty today by seeing it in God's Word. And we're going to focus on sovereignty so that we can embrace it in our lives. So the first point I want to make about sovereignty, I want to make about sovereignty, I need to enunciate better at times. The first point I want to make about sovereignty is that God's will is the final cause of all things. God's will is the final cause of all things. Notice that word final in this phrase. I want to emphasize final. It doesn't mean that, that God's will is the only will at work. God has created all things in such a way that there are other wills than the will of God. However, God's will is the final cause of all things. So let me say it this way. God's will is not the only will involved in events. Or in moments and happenings and even decisions, there are other wills involved. Some for good and some for evil. Some wills that are wrong and some wills that are good. There are individual wills of individual people. You and I have what we call the will. This ability to make decisions, to initiate, to go in a particular direction, to say, not this, but that. I don't believe this, I believe that. I'm not going to do this, I'm going to do that. We have a will. There's also the corporate will of nations or groups. In fact, sometimes the Bible references that. Why do the nations rage? Right? There's a decision against God. There's rebellion against God. And it's a it's group thing. It's actually group DNA. It's the way that it's our essence as humanity since the fall. Of mankind, so there's there's corporate will and and, and the, the will of nations or groups. There's also the will of the enemy, the ultimate rebellion against God. The devil himself and his demonic forces exercise their will against God, and they are working to destroy, to tempt, to shipwreck faith, to stir up discord and dissension, to use every means available to them 
to strategically undermine the work of God. But, but, even though there are other wills in this world, that of individuals and that of groups or nations and that of the enemy, even though the Bible affirms all that, the Bible also affirms that God's will is primary. It's first and it's ultimate. And it's final. In case ultimate didn't communicate that. First, ultimate, final, primary and ultimate cause of all things. And what that means is that all these other wills, the will of people, the, the will of groups, and the will of the enemy, those are secondary causes. You see? Secondary causes. God's ultimate is primary. All other wills are secondary or subsequent to and re- reliant on God's will. Now, obviously, this is a hard teaching. It's a hard reality because it's hard to comprehend how there can be a will that a will within a will. How can my will be within God's will? But somehow it is, and that's what the Scriptures teach us. And so then, therefore, the next step for us as believers is to see, is that what God's Word teaches? And we'll take it line upon line. So let me try to build out this idea that God's will is the final cause of all things. First of all, God is free to do all He wills. If I could have that first text, Psalm 135, 6. God is free. So whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Whatever He pleases, He does. The psalmist here is praising God. He's giving God praise. What is He giving God praise for specifically? He's giving God praise specifically for the greatness of God in this verse. It's one of the reasons, you can keep that verse up there if you don't mind. Thanks, Peg. She's been working with me throughout this, this process. You can look at that and you can see God is great. And one of the ways He's great, right? One of the ways He's great is that He does whatever He pleases. He does whatever He pleases. And after this verse, the psalmist is going to go on to describe some of the actions that God has taken in His freedom to act. So here's the key point. God free to do anything He wills. No one constrains Him. Nothing keeps Him from doing what He wants to do. He's free to do it. And contrast that with us. Is there something you'd like to do, but you're not free to do it? Is there? So, in other words, we're not talking about ability here. We're talking about permission. You require permission to do something. Some of the men here wanted to wear a sweatsuit and kick back in church today. I don't need to look good. I just need to be. I'm already married. Terrible attitude. And thankfully, your wife wouldn't let you do this. She constrained you. She said, you're with me. You're going to look presentable. We're going out that door. You're not looking like that. And by the way, my wife lays out my clothes on Sunday morning. Highly recommend the strategy. Can't go wrong, man. Can't go wrong. Let's say you wanted to take six weeks off from work. Can you do it? Most of us can't, right? You'd be fired. You'd lose your job. You're not authorized to do that. Let's say you wanted to stash money in an offshore account. The government doesn't look too kind on that. So I know your first thing is thinking, well, first I'll need money to stash it. I understand. 
let's say you had some, you want to put it in an offshore account, the government says, no, you don't have permission. You're not authorized to do it. You don't have the freedom. And if you get caught doing it, they're going to show you that you don't have the freedom to do it. We are constrained. We need authorization, depending on what it is, in life. But God is not. He is sovereign. So He does what He pleases. Secondly, God is able to do whatever He wills. He's able to do it. So you may be free, right? I remember as a kid that went through this phase. Probably every kid goes through this phase. We learn that America is a free country, and we soon turn that on to our siblings. They say, stop doing that. Why? It's a free country. Right? You probably went through that phase too. Do what I want. It's a free country. Well, we're not talking about right now freedom or permission. We're talking about ability. There are some things that we don't have the ability. We have ability limits, right? I'd like to eat cheesesteaks for every meal. But I would be dead soon. You'd like to take your family on a cruise around the world but you've got some financial and time limits. You can't do it. You don't have the ability to do it. Now more seriously, we would like to help every abused child on the face of the earth, right? We want to rescue them and give them the love that they need and show them how God is loved and take away their pain. And we may be able to help some. But we are unable to help them all. That's a limit. By the way, we cast ourselves on the mercy of God and do what we can and we pray and cry out to Him, right? But it's a, it's a limitation. We're unable, even if what I want to do is righteous and good, I can't do it all. We're not able to do everything we will. But God is. He can do all that He wants to do, and He's great because of it. Let me give you another verse here. Luke chapter 1, verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Any idea where this verse comes from? You may remember it. You may recognize it. It comes from when Gabriel is talking to Mary. You remember the background here? Gabriel appears to Mary. What's he about to tell her? I know you're not married. You've never been with a man. But you're going to conceive and give birth. You're going to give birth to the Son of God. He's going to save His people from their sins. How is this possible, she's saying? How can I conceive? And this is what Gabriel says. He says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Anything God wills, He's able to do. God is free to do all He wills. Remember that? And He's able to do all He wills because He's the only sovereign one. Not only that, but God, third, I should say, God rules and reigns. He rules and reigns. God is a king. He's the only true king. He's the only real king. He's the ultimate king. And I think when we... I, when we, I think when we try to grasp this, that God's the king, it can be really hard for us Americans. We see kings on, on movies and television. We, we hear about the king of England, although that seems kind of shady in some ways, or, or at least less than what a king should be. We, we read about kings in history, but it can be really hard for us. And, and here's why. Because I think, I think we have the most egalitarian society in the history of, of the world. 
And when I say egalitarian, when I'm using that right now, I, I don't mean, I'm not talking about gender. Generally, we talk about egalitarian. We're talking about egalitarianism. We're talking about gender roles. Right now, I'm talking about power and authority. In other words, we have all these citizens involved in government power. We, we, we have this representative democracy, right? So we, we uh, hire, through votes, certain citizens to represent us. And when, they're, when they win the election, they are become authorized by all of us to have certain powers. And so the authority of the power to rule the nation is spread out. And it's one of the first things we learn in school, right? The three branches of government. So that there can be what? Checks and balances. This is how Americans think. This is our mindset. This is the way we look at government. And by the way, I think it's actually a very good approach, right? Because in a fallen world, you really need accountability to keep things squared up, to keep things going straight forward. And even when you have it, it's not going to be perfect, right? So that's that. Okay, fine. But that's not the way God rules. He doesn't rule like Americans think. He's a king. He's a king. And so it's not just like someone we're excited to get our picture with or get their autograph or get a chance to say, hey, I met the state legislature today, or I, I met a senator, or I even met the president. It's, it's not just someone we're excited to tour the White House or something like that. God and his kingship means that for every decision on the face of the earth, in history, in our lives, he is completely and has absolute authority for those things. In other words, he's not just a ruler like we have to defer to or to, um, or to be impressed by or to admire. Rather, he's to be worshipped. Now, the right response if you meet the President of the United States is to respectfully shake his hand. No matter what his party or his politics, you know, this is the man that God's put in this role in you or woman, and you shake their hand and you respect, and, you, and, you, and you're, you're amazed you got to be near someone so powerful. But when it comes to God, when you meet God, you bow. You bow. You don't say, you know what, I don't like your policy here. I'm going to talk to my representative about it and see if they can oppose you. You don't do that. With God, you say, yes, Lord. He's a king. We come Him with reverential fear, and worship. So let's back that up with Scripture. I think this is obvious, but let's make it clear. We want to be good Bereans. Psalm 29.10, take a look at this. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. So the flood here is an example of God's absolute authority over the powerful forces of nature. He says, I'm sending a flood. He sits over that. He made the decision. He has power over it. And the second half of that spells it out. He sits enthroned as king. He makes a decision. Take a look at another psalm. Psalm 47.2. These are all things God's being praised for. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. Here's that idea that a king is to be completely deferred to. He's to be feared. Reverence and awe. And here is the sense of the king's ownership. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth 
with all that is in it. Let me ask you a question. Is your home on the earth? You should probably say yes to that, right? Okay, then God owns it. It belongs to Him. How about your car? How about your loved one? How about you? You're part of all that is in the earth. God owns you. You belong to Him. He deserves and requires your utter allegiance and deference. You know, one of the ways our society is wealthy is with property ownership. And in many other places and times, it was actually the king that owned the land. That's the idea of serfdom. And the people leased it from the king. It's kind of a rough deal. You even see that with Pharaoh and Joseph, right? Joseph buys all the land in exchange for food during a famine for Pharaoh. And this is working out for Pharaoh. He's thinking, I'm going to double up my money here. Because once they go to work on the land, then they'll sell it and we'll make even more money off of that. Well, the truth is, No one owns the earth except for God Himself. He lets us use it. And even in our property ownership, which is a great idea, it's still only a a temporary lease in regard to God Himself. He owns it all. So, once again, God is free to do all He wills. He's able to do all He wills. And God rules and reigns over the earth and the affairs of humanity. Now, I only gave a few quick scriptures. But you cannot get away from God's sovereignty in the Scriptures. It's all over the place. It's everywhere. These things I'm pointing out. How does grace connect with the reality of God's sovereign abilities? How is it grace to us that God is so completely sovereign? This this idea that He can do whatever He wants and He has the ability to to accomplish whatever He desires to accomplish, whatever He plans to do, and, and that He owns all things. He's the King over it all. How does that connect with grace to you in your life? Well, this is that idea that we need God to be sovereign. Because if God is not free and able and actively ruling in that completely free and completely able way, then we would not be able to count on anything God says. If He's not able to deliver from authority to ability to ownership, well, they can't really deliver. He'd be like a salesman who makes a strong pitch and you go away believing he can deliver only to find out later he really can't. God has to be sovereign over it all in order to tell you I love you and that will never end. I will save you and you can count on it. I will keep you And you never have to fear that I won't. He must be sovereign to deliver on faithfulness, on love, on kindness. Because if something constrained him, if there was some other, if it constrained him, if there was some other force, then his will could be thwarted or stopped or undermined or imposed upon. But with his sovereignty, there is every assurance that God can do what he will do. Now, the good news for you is I only have two points today. And that was point one. Uh, what I need to know, and I, and I need you to be honest. Like, we need, we're a church, right? We're, we're Christians, we're going to be honest. 
What time do you normally end? Ah. Okay. What are we, you're going to make John and CB. What's the difference? <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to ask anymore. That's great. That's great. I think I get it. I think I get it. Um, okay. So the question really, the, I have some time, but, but when should I end? Because I really want to respect that. Uh, at 12? You shouldn't have told me that. Okay. All right. Good. Good, good, good. Okay. Good. <laughs> good. All right. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, I did. I just want you to, I want to respect that. I don't want to take advantage. So, okay. So God's will is the final cause of all things. But secondly, we need to recognize that God's sovereignty extends over all things. The final cause, yes. But it also extends over all things. And in a way, we already got at that. But we need to look at it a little more closely and make sure that we've really got that clear. So I'll list off a few things. Over creation. God's sovereignty extends over creation. We, we talked about this in terms of ownership. But let's talk about it in terms of decision-making and direction. Okay? So Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you... O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Notice here that all these things, this is at the, uh, uh, that this picture of the, of the throne room of God where the elders and the creatures are worshiping God. And this, this is before the Lamb makes his appearance in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 4, they're worshiping the God on the throne. This is a this is God the Father in essence. This is God in one, but God the Father. And so they're worshiping Him, and they're worshiping Him for His creative power to call into existence, to create life and everything out of nothing. They're glorifying Him for that, and then they're specifically calling out that this all happened by His will. By His will. By your will, you brought life. And so this is amazing. You know, creation is very good. And it, it points to the good God that we have. It points to His goodness given to us. You ever think about this? This earth is essentially one big life support system for humanity. It hurtles through space. We step out of this. We can't live. This is, this is our biosphere. This is... God gave us this, our spacesuit, this earth. We have everything we need to not only enjoy, but to thrive. And it's remarkable. But as good as creation is, as much as it points to them, we should never worship creation. It didn't give itself life. It exists because God willed it. And we should recognize that as good as it is, it has also been frustrated by the curse or the fall of humanity into sin. And so God's sovereignty extends over creation. He can do what He wills with it, but it also extends over human life. Over human life. You may remember the passage in in James 4. James 4. Maybe you remember this. James is talking about, and this kind of focus here is business people, and he's talking about how we shouldn't simply create and communicate plans without any reference to God. Because nothing happens in our lives without God's will. Do you remember this? So, so what it was is businessmen were saying things like, 
Okay, um, next week I'm going to travel to this place, and I'm going to pitch to these people, and I'm going to bring along these goods to sell. And, you know, they really need these goods over there and these services, and I'm going to provide them, and I'm going to make a profit, and I'm going to come back here, and then I'm going to travel over there, I'm going to do that. And then two years from now, I'm hoping to be, you know, a, a ten-person business, and, and we're going to keep building from there. That's what they were doing. Do you remember James's rebuke to someone creating plans about the future? Let's have James 4, 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Isn't that fascinating? He, James is not saying, don't make any plans. Don't even think about it. Just open up your eyes in the morning and do whatever. He, he's not saying that. He's saying, yeah, make your plans, make your plans, but always put it into this context. If God wills, will accomplish our will. Because our will is secondary and His will is primary. You see? And after this verse, you know what James does? He says, if you don't reference God's will, he says, remember this? He says, as it is, and what you're doing is not good because as it is, you're what? Boasting. You're boasting. He's saying if you're making plans in life, without reference to God's will, as if it's just based on your will alone, and you just make your plans without reference to His will, you know what that is? It's arrogance, it's pride, it's boasting. Because you're not recognizing, I have a will, but it's always subject, always subject to His. And so yeah, it's good and right for me to think through and make good plans, but they're always gonna, I'm always going to hold them with an open hand. Is this what you will too? Okay, well, whatever you will, I'll, that'll, that'll be good. That's the way we do it. And without that, we end up with an inflated view of ourselves, like we gained our own success. Like everything we've done, we've gotten by our own hand, rather than by the hand of God. There's a third way that God is sovereignty extends over creation, and that's over the smallest details in life. Or, the, or rather, getting at the extent of God's sovereignty. It's third, it's over the smallest details in life. So let me ask you, if you knew that someone was going to face persecution, let's say someone you really love, let's say someone in this room, you knew they were going to face persecution, they were going to face death for sharing Christ and not being ashamed to name the name of Jesus. Let me ask you, how would you encourage them? What would you use? What would you pull out? What truth? Would you encourage them with? Let's see how Jesus Himself does this with us. If I could have that scripture, Matthew ten twenty-eight to thirty-one, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul; rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And continuing on, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the Father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Now, there's, there's a lot to see in this text about the way God encourages. This isn't What I'm going to give you is not the only way, but it's one of the ways, one of the powerful ways that God seeks to strengthen the one 
who will face persecution. You know what he says? One of the ways he encouraged us to stand firm in the face of persecution is with sovereignty. The full extent of sovereignty. The point of this is to get down to the minute details and to say, even over the minute details of your life, God is sovereign. He knows every part of you. That's the point of this hair on the head and sparrow issue. The point of it is down to the details. God knows every nuance. He even numbers those hairs. God knows what, what happens to, to Peter Privetera hair number 13,232. And I want you to know, I miss that hair. But God is sovereign. Right? He's sovereign. I want you to know that when I get my new body, I cannot wait to see my head of hair. I used to have a rocking head of hair. All right, we'll talk about that. I mean, chestnut brown, a little wavy. People loved it. And it's gone. And I mourn, but God is sovereign. Right? Amen. (laughs) You know, uh, one time my father wanted to move our upright piano from the living room to the basement when I was a kid. And so, you know what he did? He's kind of an engineer. He took apart the whole thing. And I'll never forget him. He had like a whole uh, systematic uh, spreadsheet, basically. But this was on calculation paper, you know, back in the days before Excel. He numbered every part of that piano, including every key, so that he could put it all right back the way he had it. That was the only way to take it down those stairs. And he did it. And it, it reminds me that the intricate detail that he went through to get that job done, which, by the way, I don't think was worth it at all. That's God with our lives. He knows. He has numbered every hair, every part of you, every decision you face, every difficulty you come across. His will is there. His sovereignty extends over it. It's not outside of His control. Do we understand that completely? No. Do we know it's true? Absolutely. And it's an encouragement to us. And, and God's saying, I, I know you. There's nothing in your makeup. There's nothing in your experience. Nothing in your body or your health. There's, there's nothing in your situation. There's not a cancer cell. There's not a bit of gossip. There's not a, there's not a difficulty with your boss. There's not a conflict. There, there's, there's not a, a, a difficulty for a loved one that you face, that God does not know. There's nothing in your heart. There's no sin that He hasn't seen. There's no moment of of sacrifice that you've made that He doesn't recognize. He knows it all. And He's saying, I know you and I love you. I've got it because I'm sovereign. You can trust Me. There's never a moment when you don't have to trust Me. I've got it. I've got it. And that means that there's opportunity for grace because He's sovereign in every single detail of your life. When you wake up groggy, grace is there. When you have a cold, grace is there. When the kids are late with their homework, grace is there. When you've lashed out again and you're chastising yourself because you were angry, God's grace is there. You name it. Whatever it is you face, it's an opportunity to know the grace of God more because God is at work in it. And that brings us to one of the hardest areas for believers to see grace in. 
That's salvation. Salvation itself can be hard for believers to see sovereignty and grace connected. But it's meant for us to see it and meant for us to comfort us. If God is sovereign over salvation, as I'm saying that the Bible is saying that He's sovereign over it all, that His will is primary and ours is secondary, if God is sovereign over salvation, if He chooses, we can struggle because we can say, well, wait a minute, what does that say about me? What does it say about my choice? I thought I was in charge of my life. I make the decisions for for this situation around here. But even here, we need to tune our hearts to the truth of God's Word. Let this be the logic that guides us. Knowing that God's Word will unlock grace upon grace upon grace for us. Let me have Romans 10, uh, I'm sorry, Romans 9, 10 to 13. Thank you, Peg. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hated. This is in, in the New Covenant, and Paul is quoting it to show us how God works in saving us. He wants us to understand that God is completely sovereign. And that's required in order for what comes to us, the salvation that comes to us, in order for that to be grace, God has to be sovereign. And so Paul is saying here that God chooses His people just like He chose Israel. Just like He chose Jacob, and He didn't choose Esau. Esau could have carried the line of Israel, but God said no. Esau was born first. It makes sense that he'd be the one. He'd be the guy. God said, no, not Esau. Why does God say no to Esau? We don't know all of his reasons, but one of the reasons that we know is so that he could show us that when, when people are made God's people, it's because God chose. It's because God chose. And that's why the Scripture says, Jacob I loved. I set my love on him. I made him my people. But Esau I have hated. Because God chose. Now, again, that may seem like the opposite of grace. How can it be grace if it's not freedom? But just think about it. If anyone other than God has a hand in your salvation, then it's not going to be grace. If anyone other than God has a hand in our salvation, it's not gracious. In other words, if our choice is a part of it. Or if our choice is the determining factor. If that's the case, then salvation is not by grace. It's not a free gift by grace. It would be in return for the virtue of the individual who says, yes, I agree. I'll take it. And it would be based on that. 
rather than God's sovereignty. Now, let me try it a little bit this way. God has a plan to save. If you've come to trust Jesus Christ, He had a plan to save you. Ephesians 1 tells us that that plan goes back before the creation of the world. And God, when it says He knew you, what it's saying is He loved you. And He's going to save you. And He's got that plan before He creates anything. That's His sovereign will. So if you come to trust Jesus, it's because God had a plan to save you. But, if we say, well, God is sovereign over everything, this is the way I used to believe. God is sovereign over everything except for my salvation. Not sovereign over that. That has more to do with me. I mean, it's really nice of Him to offer this, but I choose Him. If that's the case, think about this. Then God cannot save you. If this is the, these are the rules we're playing by, God cannot save you unless you authorize Him to save you. That means His plan is thwarted by until you approve. So God has a plan to save, but what we're saying is it can't be effective unless I agree. And it keeps Him from the full sovereignty that He has and He demands that we Acknowledge because He is God. And that condition, that authorization puts the authority. Where does that put the sovereignty in that decision? It puts it in the individual, in the human. It puts it in their acceptance of the term. You know, when people reject Jesus Christ, you know there's a willfulness in that, right? The Scriptures teach us. It, it, it's kind of akin to saying, I don't need that charity. I don't want that charity. It's like, it's like if someone was destitute, had no home, no provision, they're starving, they have a family they need to feed, but they can't feed them. And you come along and you, you offer them food and shelter and a, and a job, a career, a pathway forward. And they say, no, I don't want your charity. Would you admire them? For their humility? Or would you say, in your self-destructive arrogance and pride, you are rejecting the salvation you need. That's what humanity is in regard to Christ. And so when someone rejects Jesus, it's not an expression of their free will. It's an expression of the rebellion against That in stubborn pride, they say, no, I don't want your charity. The choice is real. It's real. And no, I can't explain completely how God's sovereignty and our choice work together. I don't have that kind of wisdom. But what I can tell you is that God's plan to save does not, it's not contingent on humanity authorizing it. We're saying, okay, I'll accept your terms. At that moment, if that were the case, it would no longer be grace because it wouldn't depend on God. But it would depend then on the wisdom of the person to receive it. We'd be saying that the person can say, oh, these are good terms, I'll take it. Or it would depend on their goodness. That they're just sort of pure in and of themselves. And it's like they're looking at it and they're saying, well, those people weren't, you know, they're not, they're not 
pure enough. They don't, they don't see what's righteous. But I see what's righteous. And I choose it. Okay, God, I accept your terms. Or, or it would be dependent on the situation of that person who made the final decision. Well, I grew up in a Christian home and, and so I was used to this. The, my, uh, my environment created this ability in me to recognize what's right and so I choose salvation. You see, in each of those cases, and you could go on, in each of those cases, the difference between someone who chooses to trust Jesus and someone who doesn't is based on something inherent in them so that they would be different and better than someone else. You know what the Bible calls that? It calls it works. That they choose. And, it's a, and that their choosing is a work. And now salvation is based on works. But what does Romans tell us? It's, it's not based on works. Why? So that that person can't boast in their mind or in their heart. And when people boast, we, we're pretty good at this. We, we get pretty good at social cues. When we boast, we, that's why that whole idea of a humble brag came about, right? It's like, I want you to think I'm humble, but I want you to know how great I am. And so I do it sort of passive-aggressively. We get pretty good at, at, at sounding humble and looking humble, but actually hiding our pride. And so that's what the Scripture is saying. If, if it were based on our decision, on our choosing, that would be works, it would be pride, and it would undercut the sovereignty of God. But it's not. The only way grace can be gracious is if God is fully and completely royally sovereign over all of it. And then His offer of salvation, His plan for salvation cannot be hindered or thwarted, but is always effective because He says so. And that means when you wake up and you realize, oh my, I, when you're spiritually alive and you realize, oh my, I've been saved by God through an incredible act of love, you recognize, you look in yourself and you say, that, that didn't come from me. I, I, I was... I was wanting to be rebellious. And then we realized it was all of grace. That God in His entire and complete sovereignty saved us by the blood of His Son and loved us and made us His own. And know this, if God chose you, He will never unchoose you. He will never let you go. And don't we need that? Don't we need to know when we're facing our doubts and the hardest times, when the decades go by and we say, oh my goodness, I didn't know the Christian life would be this hard and it would cost me this much. And, and you're asking yourself again after 20, 30, 40 years of being a Christian, do I really want to do this? Isn't it good to know God will never let you go. And you see, that to be grace. It has to be based on His sovereignty. Not my choice in the moment. His strong, undeterred, impossible to take off track, His decision 
an absolute will. And he's sovereign over all of it. Let me ask, do you believe in his son, Christ Jesus? Then you belong to him. Now, I want to say this too. For anyone here, hear me now. If you have not yet trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you do not yet believe that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Jesus is the Son of God who died for sinners, if if that is you, here's the word to you. Throw yourself on the mercy of a sovereign God. Acknowledge right now that what you need is His mercy. You are up against the King and you cannot win. So humble yourself. Trust the Lord and you will find the mercy of God in the death of Jesus Christ. Take away your sin. You'll be baptized in the name of Jesus and you'll receive the Holy Spirit and you'll have the gift of eternal life. Our God is sovereign. If I could have that last slide. Grace is made possible by sovereignty. Therefore, embrace it. Embrace sovereignty. Recognize its goodness, its reality. It's meant to comfort you and keep you strong and help you through life, dear Christian. Embrace sovereignty and you will experience even more grace. You'll know the grace that has come to you and you'll experience it even more. I'm going to pray and turn the meeting over uh, to be closed. Thank you for loving God's Word and for being here. And as we tune our hearts to God's Word, it's going to transform us, make us more like a son. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we do praise and thank You. God, we ask that You would cause this truth to go deep into our hearts. It, It can be hard, God, the notion that We're not as powerful in our own lives as we once thought. That you're not waiting upon our authorization. That we're, we have no reason to boast at all. But only to turn to you in brokenness and humility and receive the grace. And having once received it, living new creatures, born again, newness of life. Oh God, we praise You. Help us to be consistent with these truths throughout our thinking and throughout the application in our own lives. I pray God that You'd help people here today that even as they go on with their lives today, as they move from this meeting to lunch and beyond, to work tomorrow, that You would remind them They can trust You completely because You're sovereign over it all. We praise and thank You for this day and for Jesus our Savior. Amen.